I really conduct my research, my work with the goal of pushing the envelope and thinking both about how racism gets under the skin, but also then what do we do about it? What are the solutions? What are the interventions? What does it look like to have a healthy and safe birth? What does it look like to birth with dignity? Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. Today's guests are Drs. Rachel Hardiman and Tangtan Bert Chantarat. Dr. Hardiman is a reproductive health equity researcher at the University of Minnesota, where she founded the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity. Her research applies the tools of population health science and health services research to elucidate a complex determinant of health inequity, racism. Dr. Chantarat is a research scientist at the center. His work focuses on developing a multidimensional measure of structural racism, and we are so excited to have them here. Much of their research we are discussing today seeks to build health equity for black birthing people and people of color who experience adverse birth outcomes. Welcome Drs. Hardiman and Chantarat. We're so excited to be talking with both of you today. Hello. Hi. So I think we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, wondering maybe if we could start with you, Rachel. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and about your research focus that you've come to have over these years? I would be happy to. So again, I am I'm Rachel Hardiman. I, I hold a lot of titles that are important to me. Um, I always like to start with the first one, which is mom. I approach my work with the goal of making this world better for my daughter. And so everything I do is is framed through that lens. I am the inaugural Blue Cross Endowed Professor of Health and Racial Equity and the founding director of the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity at the University of Minnesota. I have built a career that's focused on identifying, understanding, and dismantling uh, structural racism and, frankly, racism in all its shapes and forms so that all people have the same opportunities to be healthy. When asked sort of what the goal of my research is, broadly speaking, it's to manifest racial justice so that Black women and girls get to live their full greatness and glory. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about you, Bert? Tell us a bit about, you know, yourself and, and also a bit about the work that you've been doing. So my name is Bert Chanrad. I am a research scientist at the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity. So the way I describe myself is, I, I take a while for me to get to this point, but I describe myself as an instrument for anti-racist effort movement. And what that means is that I develop methodological technique or ways to evaluate anti-racist intervention or policies. I'm not the face of the community, but I provide support for people who are impacted by racism to advance and lead this kind of work. Awesome. I, the, the clarity with which both of you are just so clear on what your purpose is, is amazing, I have to say. Um, 
This is another question for you, Rachel. How did you first become interested in thinking about structural racism from a health angle, given that, you know, it permeates every aspect of our lives? It absolutely permeates every aspect of our lives. But for me, I became interested in this topic before I actually knew it was a topic, right, to be interested in from a research perspective, right, because it's part of my lived experience. I often tell the story of my maternal grandmother. So growing up, she had kidney failure. And so she was accessing dialysis care multiple days during the week. And oftentimes, because my parents both worked full time, my sister and I ended up sitting in the dialysis center with, with our grandmother doing our homework while she was receiving care. And even at a young age, it was very clear to me that some days she received high quality care that was warm, that was loving. And other days she didn't. You know, other days perhaps the providers were dismissive of her or weren't believing sort of her pain levels or whatever it might be. And at that age, I didn't understand sort of what was happening or what, you know, what was at play there. But I did see that there was, you know, there was a difference in sort of the care that she was receiving. And ultimately, she decided when I was about 15 years old that she was going to discontinue dialysis. And not because she got a kidney transplant, but because she was told she was not a candidate for one. I still very clearly remember the day she showed me this letter that her primary care physician had written that essentially said, you know, we don't really have much hope for this person to live a full and healthy life. And, you know, I think even at that age, as a teenager, it's like, that can't be the solution, right? That's how does it end there for someone who, to me, seems so full of life? And, you know, ultimately she decided to take her power back and discontinue care and found a hospice provider that she connected with. And our family essentially watched her, watched her die in her home when I was just before my 16th birthday. And, you know, from that moment, it wasn't like, I'm going to go be a health services researcher. I had no language for that. But I did know and feel very deeply connected to the need to ensure that people have access to the health care that they need and they deserve. So I started my research really focused on implicit racial bias and worked with Dr. Michelle Van Ryan, who is one of the leading scholars in understanding how implicit bias plays out in the clinical encounter. And while that work, you know, as a grad student was really interesting and fulfilling, I also recognized that it was unsatisfying in the sense that, you know, even if we did miraculously figure out how to change people's unconscious biases, we're still operating in systems and structures, right, that are unfair and, and racist, frankly. And so that's what sort of led me into the structural racism space of saying we have to be able to understand how implicit bias informs structural racism and the systems that are at play and sort of all of the ways that it's embedded in the water that we swim in. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thank you. And tying into that, in terms of structural racism, when you think about historical, cultural, institutional, interpersonal aspects of the inherent bias and structural racism, um, when you think about that, how do you feel like that definition has changed over time? I think that as a field, 
we have a lot of work to do actually to think about how we are defining structural racism. We often at CARE, at the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity, rely on Dr. Zinzi Bailey's definition because it's so deeply tied to sort of how we approach our analyses. I also think that, you know, Dr. Kamara Jones and the work that she pioneered years ago and defining, you know, racism as something that structures opportunity and assigns value based on phenotype, right, based on how a person looks. And that in turn results in the conditions that unfairly advantage some people and disadvantage others. So I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, I rely on several different definitions in my work. And I think that as a field, we need to sort of coalesce on sort of what our language is. And I hope we can talk a little bit more about that too, because I think it's going to actually push us in the direction that we need to be headed in as health equity researchers. Great. Thank you. Bert, when you think about structural racism, can you just reflect also about the definition of it and why defining it is critical for this line of research? Yeah. So when I started working with Rachel six years ago, I guess, the goal of my work is how to capture structural racism. And back then, it's very vague. Like, how do you capture something that's so abstract, I guess, to me at that point? And to me, I feel like the one way to do that is you have to operationalize it somehow without an ability to operationalize it, you can measure it. And we do see transition over time. I think like a lot of people, when think about structural racism in the past, they're like, oh, residential segregation, let's just measure that. But as we see now, it's actually like a system of many kinds of discrimination and equity that works together as a system. So right now, similar to what Rachel say, we use definition of Dr. Cincy Bailey. What I generally emphasize is structural racism is a totality of many forms of racial inequity that work together and reinforcing together to produce racial inequity, not just in health, but in other things. So I guess what that informed my work is I usually think of structural racism as a system. So there's a saying that the sum is greater than, sorry, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So which is that's what structural racism is, and that kind of inform how we design method to reflect that. Thank you. That's great. So, so Rachel, turning a bit to think about one of your specific lines of work surrounding maternal and, and child health, tell us a bit about what's known about racial inequities in, in health outcomes of infants and birthing people in the U.S. So the reason that I focus on reproductive health equity is because I think that all pathways to health equity and all pathways to liberation start with moms and babies, right? If we cannot take care of moms and babies in our society, then we all are going to suffer. And so I see the work of maternal child health as a critically important opportunity to address the social needs and the issues around structural racism that plague our society broadly. And I I like to start with that because I want to be clear that a lot of the research I produce, while it may have a a maternal child health outcome, it's applicable for outcomes across the life course, I think. I started getting really interested in maternal infant health outcomes for that reason, but also because when I was pregnant, I had the type of pregnancy and birth that every single birthing person deserves to have. So I've seen what's possible. 
And by seeing what's possible, it made me want to work that much harder to get to that, right, for everyone in our society. Because right now, what we know is that Black birthing people are four times more likely to die during pregnancy, childbirth, or the year after giving birth. We see similar statistics for Indigenous birthing people in the United States. We also know that Black and Indigenous infants are at greater risk of not celebrating their first birthday, of experiencing infant mortality. And the body of research that I've contributed to has helped to uncover some of the underlying mechanisms around racism and how it contributes to those outcomes. For instance, a paper that I published with colleagues a couple of years ago found that when Black infants are cared for by Black physicians, they are more likely to survive the newborn phase versus when they are cared for by a white physician during that hospitalization time just after being born, they're twice as likely to die when cared for by a white physician. And I want to be clear, we looked at 1.8 million births across, you know, a decade and a half in Florida. And and so this was not some sort of one-off, you know, analysis. This was an incredibly robust sample that we, we analyzed. And to me, what that indicates is it's not about a conversation of a single provider or physician harming a Black infant, but really... How do we understand the role that racism plays in healthcare delivery systems that's sort of manifesting in these adverse outcomes for Black birthing people and Black infants? And so I really conduct my, my research, my work with the goal of pushing the envelope and thinking both about how racism gets under the skin, but also then what do we do about it? What are the solutions? What are the interventions? What does it look like to have a healthy and safe birth? What does it look like to birth with dignity? Well, that's a great segue to our next question, which is what evidence-based approaches can improve health outcomes for for marginalized groups, particularly in this venue in terms of maternal and child care? And I think, you know, race-concordant providers is, is one of the answers. Do you have other thoughts about that? Um, I, I have lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> um, so I always like to start with the role that midwives can play in addressing the adverse birth outcomes for black and brown birthing people in the United States. And this is not to suggest that, you know, everyone should just go see a midwife because we know that actually that's not feasible. I mean, we could talk about the workforce shortage issue, but also in addition to that, um, we know that not everyone is low enough risk. But for people who are, we see that that model of care can have an impact and really keep people safe from some of the things that are happening uh, during pregnancy, during prenatal care, during childbirth. And there's a lot of evidence being generated right now in this space. I always think about Dr. Karen Scott's work with birthing cultural rigor, where she is creating a, a measure of obstetric racism, right, for hospitals and healthcare providers and OBGYNs to understand the, the patient-reported experience and then using that evidence to develop quality improvement measures. Great. Great. So, um, so Bert, turning to you, I would imagine that in your work that you have to talk to audiences that may not be as sold on the, the role of structural racism in shaping the sort of health status that we, that we see for so many marginalized groups. And just curious, how do you go about explaining the importance of studying structural racism when you're interacting with these types of colleagues? So I assume the colleague that you're referring to is people in academia. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so to me, I usually explain to people that structural racism is actually a sorter, a sorter of uh, fundamental cause. Like if you live in a certain neighborhood, for example, you may get one kind of social resource, one kind of education, one kind of housing. And that could be different for people who look differently. So structural racism to me is a sorter. And when I explain to people why it is that we need to focus on the sorter is because if we just fix the thing that downstream, it will help certain people who get that kind of resource improve health. But if your ultimate goal is to improve the population health and eliminate health inequity, we have to kind of look further up to see what it is that make different people have different kind of risks and eliminate that. And to me, that structural racism is that fundamental thing that we have to eliminate. And that's why I always say to people that if you can't dismantle structural racism, you will always see racial inequity. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we wholeheartedly agree. And Bert, earlier this year, you published an article on measuring structural racism as a multidimensional system and received an award from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Sciences. So first of all, congratulations Congrats. on that. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, we are keenly interested in this in our own research group and would love to get you to articulate out loud why we need, why society needs a multidimensional measure to study structural racism. And then what are the next logical steps in the research? Um, okay, how do I explain? So I usually use like an example of personality when we study racism in that like a personality is multidimensional, right? It's not me being quiet or me being excited or me being diligent that determine the outcome, let's say, for example, in a job market. But the whole thing that make it me to determine the outcome of something. So reflecting that to structural racism, again, like referring back to the definition that we use, totality of many parts that create health inequities. That's why we have to study multidimensional. The greatest example, easiest example, someone have worse health than other, not because they were raised in residentially segregated neighborhood, or they went to segregated school with low quality of education, or they work in high risk occupation because that's the only place that they can work in. It's all the thing together that affect a person, like all aspects that make person sick. There is this reinforcing effect that previous research doesn't really capture. So basically, instead of measuring different things separately, you create a pattern, multidimensional pattern, and use that pattern to determine health outcome, particularly for racialized people. Yeah. Right. So basically, you've picked one of the hardest problems that there is in the whole society over centuries <laughs> and are trying to put some of the hardest models on them to explain it. And you've got a whole life's work ahead of you. Yeah. And we're grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Right. <laughs> one thing that I wanted to add is that our work, I think, is the stepping stones. We're not claiming that this is a perfect thing, but our work is a pilot and it allows us to kind of like reflect on what aspect of the measure that we can improve upon. I always tell people that someone mentioned it to me that don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So we are creating the good 
hopefully one day we get to the perfect. This is the first step for us. Well, and just just like the the version of like all all models are wrong, some models are useful. Um, and right. I think all we can do is try to get it a little bit better, a little bit better. And, you know, measurements of depression and blood pressure aren't perfect yeah. either, right? Yeah. You know, you think, oh, blood pressure, that's an actual measure. But, you know, it totally differs of if your feet are on the ground or not. Yeah. And all those other things that we measure all the time are also proxies for the truth. The truth, yeah. I was also just going to add, too, that I think the team science part of it is so important, right? So, like, Bert is trained... Um, as a decision, he's a decision scientist, right? I am a health services research, health policy. I rely deeply and heavily on, you know, critical race theory and, you know, sociology and population health. And, you know, we have other folks on our team who are bringing a, a whole different lens. And I think that that is one of the exciting parts of moving this forward is that we get to hear from all of these people who are doing really incredible work and thinking about this in different ways. Yeah, right. it's terrific. So turning to you, Rachel, given your work that you've already contributed and certainly have ongoing, how do you see the translation of, of your research into policies and practices that can have a sort of broader real world impact? Um, I love this question because it is the reason that I do the work. I got a PhD because I wanted to make sure that I was contributing to an evidence base that can actually affect change. So I don't think any of our research just sits on the shelf. And by our, I'm referring to the work that we are doing at the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity. For instance, Minnesota just passed, or about a year ago, passed the Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. And that legislation was written to begin to address the stark inequities in maternal mortality and morbidity for Black and Indigenous people in Minnesota. The Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity was written into the law as the entity that would create the anti-racism and implicit bias training that all healthcare providers who care for a pregnant or birthing person must take on an ongoing basis on the path towards birth equity. And so, you know, even as we think about the work that Bert's leading with the multidimensional measure of structural racism, you know, a lot of what we talk about is how can capturing that multidimensionality help to better inform policymakers. Because if we know that there's all of these intersections of the ways that structural racism is being manifested, but policy is being made based on sort of one dimension, being able to think about what that means for sort of all those other dimensions is incredibly, incredibly important. Great. Well, well, we're going to close with a question that we ask all our guests. And yeah. so we'd love for each of you to answer it. What is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever gotten? Could be career advice, life advice. So first Rachel, then Bert. Go with me first. <laughs> Bert, do you have something? Um, so the best piece of advice that I got, I think from a lot of people together, Rachel being one of them, is to always reflect my positionality in this line of work. I described earlier that I'm not the face of the community. I think of myself as an instrument. So that's my position in this line of work. And I think it's important for people who work in this line of work, like this effort to eliminate racial health equity or dismantle structural racism. You don't have to be a member of the community, but you need to know what your role is. Like I always tell people that when you go into a conference, there are many seats. Some people have to sit in the front. Some people will sit in the back. I'm the one who sit in the back. So I guess it's important for people to reflect on 
where it is in the room that they should sit in different situations. Yeah, that's my piece of advice that I got from Rachel. <laughs> oh, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> that was uh, um, I, so I think that I have benefited from incredible mentors who are also women in the academy not black women like myself but women in the academy who have asked and not been afraid to ask provocative questions that sort of push the boundaries and push us forward in our thinking around inequity broadly speaking and one of the things that i've embraced from them and that I now have found myself actually imparting on my nine-year-old daughter often these days. And that's to speak your truth, to always speak your truth. That's obviously easier said than done in a lot of instances. And I can think of times, you know, throughout my career where I wish I had done that more. I can also think of times throughout my career where I intentionally chose not to, whether it was for self-preservation in some way, shape or form, or or because of a different strategy. But I think that speaking that is going to both enhance the work that we're doing every day, but it also, I think, enhances who we are and how we sort of grow together. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Tardeman and Shantarat, for sharing your work. To our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash agingfastandslow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode, and they are good ones. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design and Florentina Kostisch for technical expertise, producer Brian Fitzik, and web designer Tim Carl. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.